We are in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 39. Hear then the word of God. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those who were in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and he will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are of those who have faith and who preserve their souls. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning again to you to give ourselves to you afresh in worship, in prayer, at sitting at your feet, receiving your word. Father, we long for you to be at work in our midst, in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. So come near to us and speak your word with power so that it shapes our hearts and our thinking and it shapes our living and our choosing and that we may walk with you and please you all our days. For in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. The early church, <clears throat> when the church was uh, just getting started, it was not fully distinguished from Judaism, uh, from, from, from the Jewish uh, church, so to speak, in Israel, that, that, that at the beginning they accepted Messiah, and so it started to set them apart. Uh, but that, that group of people, the early church, is made up of Jews uh, who believe Jesus is the Messiah. And so, uh, initially, Christians are just a small group of Jews who accepted Jesus as Messiah. There are these subgroups in Judaism. They're just a faction or a sect of, of Judaism. And so, that this, this group uh, pulled aside, and they believe these things. They have unique beliefs in the Messiah. But as the church grew, as more and more people uh, came to Christ, as more and more Jews believed in Messiah, uh, that, that group, and as Paul, well, he, he starts going synagogue to synagogue, and we see that that, that that group becomes bigger and bigger, and the division becomes clearer and clearer, uh, to the point where Judaism utterly rejects Christianity, and the followers of Christ, and those uh, who trust in Him. But the more Jews that were converted, the more the church grew, the more the Jewish leadership was jealous and angry about it and didn't like it and began to persecute. And we see that, not just, you know, we talk a lot about Roman persecution of early Christians, but there was uh, as much persecution from the Jewish community. We saw it when it starts with Jesus they, from early on, didn't like him and decided we're looking for ways to catch him up and to kill him. And his followers that followed, that persisted. And we know that because this intensified, you know, we get the stories of Saul. Then we first meet Paul, his name is Saul, and he's hunting down Christians, right? He's capturing them and bringing them to trial. And he stands and he agrees in the, in the murder of Stephen, the stoning, the execution of a Christian. So we have Jews persecuting Jewish believers. 
So when Paul is converted and he starts preaching Christ in the synagogues, going town to town throughout the place, uh, they begin to beat him. He's beaten within an inch of his life. More than once, he is stoned. He's driven out of town time and again. He has to slip out of town. Uh, the, The persecution, the division between them and us became complete. This is the likely context for the community of Jewish believers in in the book of Hebrews. This is a, it's called Hebrews, it's written to Jews, Jewish Christians, those who have come to faith in Christ, but it's a community that has experienced persecution and suffering at the hands, most likely, of other Jews. may have been the Romans, but the way that it reads is most likely other Jews who are persecuting Jewish Christian believers. So in verse 32, it tells us, if you recall the former days that a little while ago when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings and some uh, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Some of you are being thrown in prison. And so you have this, this persecution going on. They had heard the truth. When it says, after you were enlightened, is to say that you heard the truth Uh, And you profess your faith in Christ. Some of those conversions and professions proved to be genuine, and some of them proved to not be. But them being enlightened was that they heard the truth and they made a profession in Christ. And it says that they endured this struggle. In verse 33, they're exposed to public reproach and affliction. Right? They're a minority of Christians in a largely Jewish society, right? And so they are marginalized. Right? And, and in a sense, mocked. They're excluded from aspects of the community life. And it's hard. It's, it's not unlike a Muslim. If a Muslim converts, and you have some Christian Muslim converts in the midst of a largely Muslim community, the best case scenario is that you won't find jobs and that they'll ostracize you from everything. Worst case scenario is they'll kill you. Right? There, there is a suffering that in the minority community that those who come to Christ, the greater community, uh, often marginalizes them. And it says that some are thrown into prison. Verse 33, it says you're partners with those uh, who have been thrown in prison. With that partnership there, that's that Greek word that many of us are familiar with, the word koinonia, uh, that you have a fellowship with them, that you, you shared in a sense in their suffering, you shared in, you know, Uh, in what they were going through and supported them and prayed with them, visited them, gave them what they needed. And so that you you partner, you had partnership with folks who were suffering. You yourself suffered, and there are times those who ended up in prison and you didn't, you know, you you had a partnership and a fellowship with them. Being in prison is a high price, right? But it only gets worse, right? Verse 34, it said that you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew yourselves that you had a better possession, abiding one, but they, their, their property was plundered. So I don't know, I mean, it sounds like the people who went to prison, their house is empty and you know what it is. You've seen it this morning, the hurricane in Mexico, the um, army's coming to protect because of the looting, right? When the people who live there aren't there, you got looters. Right? And so these people, they're being thrown in prison, and you got people plundering and looting their property, taking their stuff. We see this kind of thing. It's been happening throughout history and throughout the world. We see it even right now, Christians under Chinese government oppression, uh, closing churches, taking their property, arresting people, their political and religious 
you know, different groups being persecuted within it. We see it in Nigeria right now over the last couple of years in particular. Uh, in Nigeria, there's a Muslim persecution of Christians that has been just absolutely brutal. You know, breaking into, into services and murdering and, and taking captive. You know, a lot of what just went on in Israel was, has been happening in Nigeria. Uh, the brutalizing of people, the beheading, the, you know, not just killing, but, uh, and, and, but it's Muslim persecution of Christians. Right? You have it going on in China. You have it going on in Nigeria. You have it going on all over the world. In India, under Hindu. I mean, it's interesting. I was in India in 1986. I think. As a junior in college, I went there for a couple of months, and when we were there, we saw, we saw some fruitfulness in mostly Hindu converts. We reached out to Muslims and to Hindus, but really we saw in the lower caste, particularly of Judaism, in the lower caste, you have very little hope in this life. Um, but and you would see them coming to Christ, and we saw a lot of fruitfulness, and the church in India has been growing. And right now, if you watch in the last 10 or 20 years, um, long after I've been there, Hindu persecution of Christians has intensified massively. Uh, and so there is all kind, you can just read of all different kinds of, from burning churches and beating and I don't even want to list the kind of brutality. And so you have now the larger Hindu community. When you have a subset of the community of Hindu Christian converts, people converting to Christianity, they're a minority of the community and they suffer. It's hard for us to imagine this in our country, but it's getting easier, isn't it? I mean, it's getting easier, and we see even in Canada, they're a little bit ahead of us, the stuff that they're doing. Hate speech laws, you know, against LGBTQ+, uh, and they label speech as violence. For me saying this this morning, there may come a day when I come under charges. It's, it's verbal violence. It's hate speech. So they take that and it's becoming an unsafe environment to, to preach the gospel, to just state what you believe, what you believe morally, uh, the scripture teaches, and who God is, and what he says. And for you to hold that worldview and to actually articulate it in any way is getting more and more unacceptable. You know, in California, they just tried to pass a law. If you're paying attention, it didn't pass, praise be to God. But in California, they tried to pass a law that if parents were not affirming of their children's trans feelings, then the children could be taken away from them, right? So now you're in this, where your minor children, your 11-year-old kid has feelings this way, and if you don't have the proper response, they take your children away. They literally had a law in California that didn't pass, but the law was put forth, right? It's getting easier to imagine where we're going. It says in verse 34, they joyfully accepted the looting. They stood their ground because they knew. Right? In verse 34, it says they knew. They endured it. Even if it meant the plundering of their property, even if it meant what it meant, they did not compromise. They stood their ground, and it said they did so because, verse 34, they knew, you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You knew you had a, something better than that which was being plundered from you. The book of Hebrews is written to call the church to faithfulness in the midst of this kind of suffering. Right? They're experiencing, they're the minority community. We are a minority community. Once upon a time, the country was more 
culturally Christian at least, and, and if the church wasn't embraced, it was at least respected. We are now on the other side of things where now we are not respected. We are those who are criminal because of the things that we believe and the things that we teach. And it says, this is, this is written to people, and I, you know, we'd say we're being persecuted, but I would still say in the course of things in the world, in history and around the world, we don't even know the beginnings of what it means. But it is beginning, and we know a little bit of it. And my point is that this book is written, I guess, for us to have in our head, if, it, if and as it goes this direction, to understand like a book like Hebrews is written to people like us, a minority group of Christian believers in the midst of a larger society where we become more and more marginalized and ostracized. There are professions in the country right now that if you're an evangelical Christian, you'll never be hired. Universities where you could not work, law at parts of law, in different places you could not work because you're a Christian. They wouldn't hire you. You're too conservative. You're too, your views are contrary to the sexual revolution that is taking our country by storm. And this book is written to call the church to faithfulness in the midst of persecution and suffering. We talked last week about those middle two soils in Jesus' parable, the soils, the obvious, uh, you know, where they reject the word, the hard soil, and the obvious soil of the good soil that receives the word, and those middle two soils which are uh, a bit more uh, confusing, that there's an initial response, but it doesn't last. Right? And the two temptations that cause it, that, that show when it's tested, it doesn't prove genuine, is the temptation of suffering and the temptations of, the, of pleasures and comfort of this world. And either those pleasures and comforts choke it out, or the suffering shows that it has no root and can't abide. And what you're having in the church that the Hebrews are being written to is you're having these middle two soils. You're having it show out which one, which soil are you under this persecution. There are those who are shrinking back which is why he pulls from the Old Testament these kind of verses and these kind of things about those who are shrinking back. And he's telling them, don't shrink back. Stand firm. Hold to the faith. Even, you know, there, there was times we see the church suffering in this way and abiding. The temptation of suffering. Some don't realize that suffering is a temptation. It can be a temptation. When we suffer, we start to wonder, where is God? How could he allow this? We are tempted to doubt. We're tempted to pull back. We are tempted to get angry. Times of suffering when God, we believe God is sovereign and when these things happen. But when we read the scripture and we see in history, the church didn't experience those things that way. They knew that life was full of suffering. They knew they were not exempted from suffering. They understood that Jesus was hated before them. Jesus said, they hated me first. Don't be surprised when they hate you. But he told us, he warned us that we're going to be that minority community and that we are going to endure those things. It's not a surprising thing. In 1 Peter, he says, why are you acting surprised at the suffering and the trial that you're facing? It's not a surprising thing. In the history of the world and around the world right now, it's relatively normal because we stand at odds with the world. We stand on a different ground. We stand with Christ and, and they hated Christ and they crucified him to be done with his challenge of their ways and the world in rebellion. He challenged their rebellion against God and they wouldn't have any of it. And they won't have it of us either. And it will get harder, in my humble opinion. And it is a temptation. 
suffering, marginalization, people taking, you know, the, the things that come into our lives, not being able to get jobs, being passed over for promotion by people who don't like you because of your convictions. The Jewish Christian community is suffering this temptation, the temptation to fall back, the, the temptation to conform to the Jewish community, to conform to the ceremonial Jewish laws like they used to, right? to fall back from their hard convictions of Christ and the gospel. The more you conform, the more you shrink back from Jesus and all those hard things that he says, all those moral convictions that he conveys, that his word puts forth, all of the ways Jesus confronts the world in the culture, if we shrink back from those things, well, the world will tolerate you more. And that's a temptation of the church to smile and tell people what they want to hear rather than to tell them the whole counsel of God. Right? The more the culture will tolerate you and the more the culture tolerates you, the less we'll suffer. And well, it's one way to go. He says, if he shrinks back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. He's calling them to faith in enduring their suffering. Faithfulness in the midst of what the world brings to us. But he also talks about faith in a better an abiding possession, right? That's what verse 34 says. He says that you, you, you experienced all this and you uh, endured it joyfully, joyfully. And this is the thing, too, that we wrestle with. How, what does it mean they endured it joyfully, right? James says the same thing. Consider up your joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, right? The joy comes from something you know. It's there and it's here, right? You knew. You, you endured the plundering of all your stuff. Trying to think of my house, the books in my office. Should I go in prison? And they come and plunder my books. Man, this would be a hard thing for me. They took all my books. But he says they enjoyed, they endured it joyfully, whatever they took. Why? Because you knew. You knew that you had a more enduring and abiding and a better possession than anything they could ever take away from you. Right? They knew. Consider joy when you face trials and suffering of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance, endurance, and endurance is what makes us mature and complete as believers in a hostile world where suffering will be our lot. Paul says anyone who seeks to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. Because you're doing something wrong. There were many who were faithful in the community, who were sustained by their faith, and they joyfully suffered loss because they knew they had a better possession. They believed in eternal life. They believed in the kingdom of God. They believed in the resurrection. They believed that there was so much more that this life is not our home. They, they're, they're just passing through. They knew they were just pilgrims in a short, and this is short compared to the eternity that is before us. They knew. When it says they knew, what does it mean? How did they know? Because Jesus told them. Because the word of God proclaims it. That's how they know. And they believed Jesus. Follower To follow Jesus is to believe what he says. They believed him. They believed the word of God. 
And they were living by faith in the things that Jesus said were true. And it radically affected the way they experienced life and suffering. It's a statement they knew. He says, you knew that you had a better and abiding, right? You knew that it's a statement of the quality of their faith. They believed that it was true. They knew the promises of God. And they built their whole life on them. And however poorly it went and however it cost them to say, Jesus Christ is Lord and I will not deny it. And I will stand on his word. Do what you will. I love the hymn we were just singing. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, but his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That is the faith of saints through history. It is at the foundation of the Reformation and of our church and our believing this world is not our home. And our, our, our loyalty is to Christ and not to this world and not to its powers and not to its gifts and its material blessings per se. We're willing to suffer like it's true. Right? They, 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 they wanted to live as if it was true and, and they wanted to suffer like it was true that his kingdom is forever. My journey group this week, we're doing a four-week segment on generous living. And four weeks is a long time to talk about generous living, which comes a lot down to tithing and giving of our income above tithing. And when we talk about tithing, when the Bible talks about tithing, and when I talk about tithing, and when that study talks about tithing, they're not talking about giving a little bit of money to the church. A tithe literally means 10%, right? So when you talk about tithing, you're talking about 10% giving at that level. Uh, it's not a sermon on tithing. <laughs> uh, but, but generous living and what we're studying, it's a call to tithe to generously support the work of the church, the kingdom, and missionaries and all of this. And many of us tithe. Um, we have in this discussion, do you tithe on gross? Do you tithe on net? Do you tithe on, you know, when you, you know, and I'm like, well, I tithe on gross. It's just, I don't know. It's the way I do it. I'm not sure the Bible says one way or the other, but that's the way I roll. It is 10% on gross. Uh, we give to the missions fund above that. We give to the building fund uh, above that. And at home, there are other people that we support on our own uh, uh, in a mission work that we, that we give. I tell you this partly because, A, I think it is healthy for you to know that your pastor practices what he preaches um, and that, that I would never call you to follow Jesus in ways that I don't. But here's why I'm telling it to you, really. It's just simply this. If we don't have a better and abiding possession, then we're fools. We're just plain fools. Throwing away money. Throwing away our money on stuff that isn't true and in the end doesn't mean anything. If it's not true, then we're dumb. But if it is true, Jesus says we're laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, a better possession. 
He also says when we make public these things that we may have given up our, <laughs> given up. And I, I put it out there because I do believe that we should say, though, for us, that he calls us to things. He calls us to sacrifices, to, to look lightly on the things of this world and to invest them into his kingdom, into his church, into the advancement of the gospel, to seeing people come to Christ. He is building his church against the gates of hell. He's doing it till he comes back. And he says, you need to be a part of it. You need to be invested in it. You should be laying up treasures in heaven, not on earth, where wrath and moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up your treasures in heaven. Invest them in the kingdom of heaven. There is a, and he says, there is a, you have a better and abiding reward and which shows in the way that we live this life. We show what truly is valuable, what we truly uh, put our st- literally our stock in, literally what we put our hope in, literally where we put our money, where our mouth is, or our faith is, or our profession is, in the things that we love. And that's where these guys who are, who are willing to joyfully consider, be willing to go to jail and have their stuff plundered because they won't deny Christ. The plundering of their possessions, they didn't even give it willingly, they would let it be taken. Jim Elliott who was a missionary to, he's a young man in the 1960s, a rising star, brilliant individual, um, and on his, and he decided to go to the mission field. And people couldn't understand, why is somebody this brilliant? He has such a brilliant future. Why would he go to the jungles of the Amazon, to a violent uh, tribe that has no interest in Jesus? But he, he went as a missionary. And when they asked him, why would you do that? And his answer was this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He had a better and an abiding possession, so he did not cling to the things of this world and was willing to open his hand and put them into God's hand. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. We're not going to keep it. They're saying there's no U-Hauls in the back of a hearse. I was watching a show recently where someone had died and there was a family member walking around their apartment just sifting through their stuff, all their possessions. They're gone and it's all still here. Somebody else gets it. Saved it up, you amassed it and they're just wandering around. You can't take it with you and he's, this is the saying, you're no fool, you can't keep it anyway. <laughs> Ultimately, there is this, it is not, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose because when you do pass on and you've invested in an eternity, you've invested in the things of God, the scripture seems to indicate you are laying up for yourselves treasures in heaven. We are not fools to live in ways that show that we know that we have a better, we have a better and abiding possession and the way I live and handle things of this earth shows that I'm, I know that. Verse 35, we are tempted to shrink back. And he says, do not throw away your confidence. We throw away our confidence when we live like we don't have a better. When, we, when we're so invested in things here and we're so afraid of losing things here and we're so afraid of, of the consequences of faith and faithfulness to Christ that, you know, and we're tempted to shrink back and he, he writes to them and he's telling the church, he's telling you and me, do not throw away your confidence which has great reward. It's true. And we know it's true. I know that I know. And I take Jesus at his word and I believe that he's true. 
And to illustrate this, the author, as you know, if you know where we're going from here, is chapter 11. Right? It's a great hall of faith, and he's going to take what he's talking about, and he's going to show through all of Scripture, starting with Abel and through all of them, just it's a great hall of faith, and people who lived by faith in the way God worked in and through their lives, and all the way to the end, and you know, it sounds really good for a while there. They, they closed the mouth of lions, and they turned back armies, and they had all these victories by faith, and then at the end it says, and then some were sawed in half and lived in caves and suffered the plundering of all their worldly possessions and, you know, but were faithful. And the world was not worthy of them. Chapter 11. To wander through the faithful lives of believers through history. Paul in Romans 8.18 says this, Paul who suffered all kind of things at the hands of, of his enemy. He said he was, he was beaten with rods. He was whipped with whips. He was stoned. He was uh, driven out of town. And he says this, I consider the sufferings of this present world, they're not even worth comparing. <clears throat> He's not saying I didn't suffer and it didn't hurt because <laughs> it did. We all know it hurts. But he's saying it's not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us when Christ comes. It's true. We have a better and an abiding. And so he says in verse 36, there is need for endurance. Verse 36, you need, you have need of endurance. No kidding, right? Statement of the obvious. Things that you're talking about, yeah, well, endurance would be nice, right? If I'm going to make it to the end, Precisely what I need, right? You, you have need, church of Jesus Christ. Whether you know it or not, it's probably the number one need you have to endure to the end, faithful, to not be taken down by the pleasures and the comforts of this world and to not be taken down by whatever suffering that we may have, but to be faithful to the end, living like it's true, suffering like it's true, sacrificing like it's true, you have need of endurance so that you may per persevere in the will of God and stay faithful to the end. Jesus says in Mark 13, 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Let us not be surprised. The fact that they haven't hated us is a fluke in many ways of history. A culture that is in some ways Christianized and some would say it was Christian. We can have a whole debate there, but I'm just going to say When we live a godly life in Christ, in the midst of a world, we are generally, historically, around the world, going to be the minority, marginalized, and hated community. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end, you have need of endurance, my friends, the one who endures to the end will be saved, will have a better and an abiding possession and eternal life better and lasting an eternal home with the father revelation 2 10 says be faithful unto death i will give you the crown of life i will give you a better and abiding possession and so he says we have need of endurance in the midst of the suffering the conflict that you undoubtedly will come across or your children will and you will need our children 
teach our children to raise a, a thankful, praising voice, a joyful voice in the midst of what they will. It will be worse for our children and our grandchildren than it was for us. And we need to be preparing a generation. We're awful soft. And we are in this technical age, you know, raising soft children in some ways if we're not careful. But the way the world is going, we should be teaching our children very thoroughly in, you know, what it means to be faithful to Christ in the midst of a world that will not love them if they say the things that Jesus said and stand on the truth as it is in his word. But where does this endurance come from? And the answer is that it is God's gift implanted in our souls by an omnipotent Christ. It is God's gift, said in Sunday school this morning, reminded us that we believe Jesus when he says that you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Do you believe that? I don't think the church believes that. The way that we run around sometimes, I don't think we believe that. Uh, the way that we are, you know, neglect prayer and neglect, you know, a lot of spiritual things and act like we got this. But he says you can do, apart from me, you can do nothing of spiritual power and meaning, goodness, apart from me, right? So it is Christ. And so Paul prays it to the church. Here he calls the church to it. His word calls us to it, but then he doesn't just tell the church to do it. You know, listen to Colossians 1. I've taken you to this text before. It's an important text. He prays for the church. After talking about the ways he, the work of God's sanctification, his continued work in the life of the church, and then he says this, and I pray and listen, there are three words of power, right? I pray that you will be strengthened. You, church, will be strengthened with all power. Like, so now you're strengthened with all power. And, and it's not just any power. It's all according to his glorious might. So now you are strengthened with all this power, and it's his glorious power. So you can do what? Right? There are a lot of power people out there. They're phenomenal. You know, they want to see, you know, they want to go do one, you know. What, what for? Endurance. Just as simple as that. The most fundamental thing that you need power for every day and in this thing is endurance and patience with joy. This endurance with joy. Where does it come from? It is His strength in us, all His power and His grace and His mercy day by day as we walk with Him and love Him and know Him and abide in Him and spend, are with Him and we worship Him and we trust Him and we're in His Word and we ask for it and we plead for it. May we be strengthened, Father, with Your power so that we can be faithful in this generation. Christians pray for this kind of power. This is the miracle that any Christian would endure when it not only doesn't pay anymore, but it actually may cost you. Endurance with joy. So finally, the righteous will live by faith. There's just faith in suffering, and, there's in, and, and we, we have faith in suffering because we have faith in a better and an abiding uh, possession. And so the righteous, the characteristic of God's people, we live by faith, right? It's an important and central part of the Christian life, this faith, this 
prayerful, that is an expression of our faith, you know, and the power that comes, the fullness of the Spirit that comes as we have faith in Christ and we're abiding Him in prayer and we find His power and His grace to endure and to be His people, His faithful people in any and all circumstances. These Jewish Christians were suffering persecution and conflict. They were experiencing pressure. The culture was pressuring them to compromise, pressuring them to shrink back from those hardline stances that you're taking that is hurtful to other people. Stop it. And the compromise, the pressure upon them to shrink back, right? It's about this same time that they're under this kind of pressure that Gentiles are beginning to put their faith in Christ, right? This is the early Jewish, the early Christian community was almost entirely Jewish for a period of time, a period of years, until all of a sudden when they started going abroad and preaching in the synagogues and other towns, Gentiles were hearing and believing and being baptized in the Spirit and becoming born again and becoming part of the church. They didn't, know, they didn't expect this. They didn't know what to do with this. There was some infighting about it. What does this mean and what does this look like? Do we accept Gentiles, Gentile dogs, who didn't even get the scraps from the table? Right? But no, now... Now they're, they're invited in. Those who are far away are brought near. And so they become, they start coming in. And so you have the rise of the Judaizers. So it's a fancy word and we talk about that. And it's, it's this pressure from the church to conform, to shrink back. This group is to be pushed to go back to their old Jewish ceremonial ways. To, to go back to their Old Testament ways. To step back from the freedom of the gospel. They wanted to embrace Jesus as Messiah, but they didn't want to let go of Mosaic law and its ceremonies and stuff. We have a lot of people that want to do that kind of, I want to, I want to believe in the Messiah, but I really don't want to let go of all this other stuff. And it's really not an option. And so when we do that, we shrink back away from the gospel that is in Christ. They're still working out these implications. And this reality underlies the book of Galatians, which I think speaks to this whole situation in the Hebrew church that is before us, because the book of Galatians was written to, to set Christians free from their bondage to, uh, to the law and legalism, right? It's exactly what these guys are struggling with, to shrink back into that legalism of the Old Testament law system that could never save them. And so even Peter succumbed, you remember, there's this confrontation between Peter and Paul, Galatians 2, it tells us that before certain men came from James, certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. He was free in the gospel. The Gentiles were part of the church. We're all in Christ. We're one happy family. Like we are, we're united in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, you know, barbarian, Scythian or whatever. We're all, in, we're all one in Christ. There's one church until certain men came from James. And then when they came, he shrank back. And he separated himself. And it says he was afraid of the circumcision party. These are the Judea. These are the legalists coming in saying Gentiles need to be circumcised. Gentiles aren't, aren't you know, full members of the club. Gentiles, you know, whatever they're, they're, they're doing, they're calling them to shrink back. They've got to Judea. They've got to make the church more Jewish. And their conduct, he says, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so Galatians 3, 2 and 3, it says, let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? Or by hearing by faith? Are you so foolish having begun with the Spirit? Are you now 
being perfected by the flesh? Are you going back to the law? Are you going to shrink back into other things? So the temptation to shrink back is different. For us, it's going to be a little different for them. But it's the same shrinking back. Shrinking back from the fullness of the truth of the gospel into something else. Whether it's a legalism of Old Testament Judaism, or for us, it's going to be a cultural accommodation and just to step back into uh, a pleasing of the culture around us. But he says in verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. You started by the Spirit, end in the Spirit. Do not, it has a great reward, stand fast in the gospel. Verse 37, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Or verse 38, Jesus is coming back. He is returning. Spurgeon says, faith works by love, and it purifies the soul. Faith, it works by love, it purifies the soul, it sets the heart free. Faith sets the heart free to run after the prize of our high calling in Jesus. Sets us free from the fear of the world and the the pull of all these other things. Hence, it is a purifying and active principle, by no means that inert thing that some suppose it to be. Faith changes everything. To live by faith To live by faith is to believe that we have a better and abiding possession laid up for us. It's to believe that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared to glory. It's to believe that all things are working together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That includes our suffering. And believing that all things are working together for the good is is then to believe that God is at work even in the suffering that he's describing here. And so it is submitting to God's will in all these things. Submitting to his will is to live by faith, and his will is so many of the things we've been talking about. Christians often shrink back from them because we don't believe we have a better and abiding possession that sets us free to live sacrificially, to live boldly, to live riskily, to live in ways that show that we know this world is not our home. John Newton said, submission to the will of God in a Christian, it is the chief ornament of his profession. If you say you believe in Christ, the chief ornament of that and the chief sign and fruit of that is submission to the will of God. It includes the whole of God's will. It is the fairest fruit, this this submission to his will, the surest criterion of faith. Faith recognizes his hand. It trusts in his management. It yields to his will. We submit to his providential will and to his revealed will in his word. We accept what he brings into our lives in terms of suffering and we obey his word, his will as it's revealed in his word. Let me just end with this. Faith is like the young racehorse that's implanted in your soul. To live by faith at, at, at the new birth, you know, faith is implanted in your soul, but it's like a mustard seed. It, it's, it's true life, it's full life, but it's like a baby. Baby is a full human being. He's just little. And he has a lot of growing to do. But it's all there. He is every, you know, he's all, he's, it's all there. The, the faith and the new life that's planted in us is like a, a young racehorse planted in us that needs to be fed and nurtured so it grows strong and fast in, in the race of life. And so there's this nurturing of the, of the soul, this nurturing of our faith. Paul says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ.
We live by faith as we take hold of him, as we never shrink back, because we know, we know that we have a better and abiding possession, and so we live like it's true, because it is. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you for capturing these things in your word and giving them to us, that your church through history has and will endure suffering, that we will be tempted, that we will want to shrink back. There will be those who do shrink back. It was, it was so here in the earliest days of your church. It is now this way around the world, and it may be for us in the very near future. Father, would you give us the grace to see Jesus and all that is in him is true so that we will be free from our materialism of loving this world like it was our, our all, our home. That we would believe and live like we have a better and an abiding possession. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.